Jesus Christ is preeminent, surpassing all others, pure perfection. So let us never undersell the work on the cross and the miracle of the resurrection. We love to talk about Christ's birth and we love to mention his ministry here on earth. But when it comes to his death, when he breathed his last breath and it was gone from his chest and he was left lying still as his mom wept, man, that's painful. But if we ever try to skip over this text, let us snap back to reality, the weight of the gravity, no more living in depravity. We realize what this moment actually did for us and wow, man, what the resurrection signifies for each one of us right now because it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that we know that life is stronger than death. And so love is stronger than hatred and hope is stronger than despair. We know the promise of eternal life is available to anybody that dares to cast their burdens and their cares and submit themselves to the one to whom none of us can compare. We know the resurrection fully renewed the relationship between you and your creator. When the temple veil was ripped like a single sheet of paper, the connection was restored between us and our Lord. And not because of anything that we have done, it's all because the death of his son. Because if Jesus hadn't died in our place, we would never be able to walk through heaven's gates. We would have never been able to look upon his face and we would have never experienced that sweet, sweet taste of his unconditional love and grace. You see, man couldn't fulfill the debt of sin and God couldn't relate to fallen men. So Jesus had to pay the price of sin. We couldn't, he had to live the life that we wouldn't. Upon that wooden cross, he died when he shouldn't because that should have been you and me. But Jesus took the burden away from every single person of having to perform to show that they are worthy. See, on that cross, we can know for certain that our future was determined. See, we belonged on that cross, not him. We deserve to just hang from that cross, not him. We deserve to be beaten and bruised, not him, because we've all rejected the good news, not him. But that's why the cross is so important. That's why Easter shouldn't be ignored because whenever that stone was rolled away, whenever Jesus Christ stepped out of that grave, he made it so that we would no longer be enslaved. All of our sins have been washed away and all of our debt has been paid and placed upon that cross, upon that beautiful old rugged cross. So during this Easter time, please reflect on this gift that we've all been given. Don't just check into church to fill a family tradition, but actively celebrate in the fact that he is risen and in the fact that we've all been forgiven because what was meant for death placed freedom in our hands. The day that death was arrested is when our new life began.
Hey, church family, so glad to be able to share with you this morning, be able to greet you this morning. We have a number of different announcements, but the first thing we want to testify with you is that He is risen. Amen? Christ is risen. Man, we're so excited that even in the midst of all of the things going on, that that truth still is able to be declared today. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to be dropping the bulletin down in the comments for you. You can connect to that. It's going to give you a variety of information about some different ways that you can connect via Zoom or Facebook Live for you, for your kids, for your family, different ways you can stay plugged in and a part of this community, even in these extraordinary times. I want to be able to pray with us this morning, pray for God's blessing of our time in this service, and pray for the other churches in our community. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, we thank you that today, that even today, we are able to declare with joy, with assurance, with confidence that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death, that he is living in the reality of his resurrection. And so, God, we rejoice for all that that means for us, that we are able to be forgiven our sins. Your son has overcome sin and death so that we might be forgiven and restored to you, and we rejoice in that. Father, we are aware of all the many churches gathered across this country and this world who are worshiping the truth of that reality today. And God, we pray for the power of your spirit to be mightily at work in the various homes and apartments and places people are gathered and listening to this and watching on television. God, that they would put their full faith and confidence in your son, Jesus. God, we want to desperately cry to you for the health of your church. You have established your son as its head. God, your church is at work in the community. And so, God, we pray for the many churches of our community. Pray for their pastors and the burdens they're feeling this morning. We pray for their parishioners and the difficulties of their life. And, God, we pray that the church would truly be the hands and feet of Jesus, that it would minister to itself. And, God, that it would be an outpost in engaging the world, that it would share the hope that it has in Jesus. God, we pray for your church. Father, we pray for our time of worship this morning as this local body. God, I pray your spirit would do a work in our hearts that would move in our lives. We would find ourselves submitting to you and your greatness, receiving you and your compassion. God, would you lead us in this time of worship? Would you even use your Holy Spirit in this time, although we are separate and moved out? God, that your spirit would work in us to produce a joyful noise to you. God, that you would be enthroned in the majesty and praise of your people. Father, we submit this time to you. Help us to redeem this time. Help us to make use of this time and help us to be useful for you in the furtherance of your kingdom in this time and forevermore. And we submit all these things to you in the name of your mighty son's name, Jesus. Amen. Just sing with us this morning. Christ is alive today. Sing this out, there's now a hope. There is now a hope that lasts beyond our day. For the one that once was buried lives again. Thank you. 
just a second there is going to be a screen that pops up for you and it's going to walk you through three different things we want you to pray for as you guys begin to prepare your hearts to hear the message and if and someone at your home we ask that someone at your home would pray for these three things as you begin and if you've never prayed before know that there are hundreds of families across Greenville praying for you during this time Church family, it is so good to be able to share with you this morning. Man, the last time that you would have heard from me on Friday evening in the midst of our Good Friday service, it results with Jesus' death in his burial. And man, that leaves us feeling uh, despondent. It leaves us feeling the anguish of our Savior. But in this moment, in this morning when we're gathered together, we are we have brought to our minds, we remember that Christ did not remain in the grave, amen? That God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, raised Christ up from the dead. And so today, we live a resurrected life in the hope of Jesus. And so we have an opportunity this morning to celebrate the good thing God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been making our way through the book of Colossians, Paul, back in chapter 1 and verse 13, was, was talking to them, and he made this reference. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is, is introducing to them the understanding that in Jesus, something radically new and exciting has happened for you. But one of the questions that would have been rolling around in their minds on the basis of the opposition that we're facing is, is Jesus truly great? Man, is Jesus truly great? Is he sufficient? Is he able? Should I put my full faith and confidence in him? Is Jesus truly great? Man, there are a number of things that I'm sure that you've encountered, that I've encountered, that people have told us, you're not going to believe this. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Just, just wait. As soon as you see it, as soon as you experience it, you're going to be blown away. One of the things I think about a number of years ago, before any of our kids were born, we were on this amazing trip to Ireland. And we spent a week and we saw all of these fantastic sights and, and this whole list of things people had said. But over and over again, people had told me, you have to see the Blarney Stone. You, you, you've got to see the Blarney Stone. If, if you don't see anything in Ireland, you have to see 
the Blarney Stone. So there we were, we drove to the castle, we parked, we walked up, and, and there's this Blarney Castle. And as so you walk up to it and you're looking at it, one of the first things that occurs to me on my head is this thing's never passing any type of safety check. This thing's never passing any type of safety check. So you're, you're walking up the stone steps, you're making a way through all these little tight corridors, and you come up and you are at the top of the castle. And you're looking at the safety railing, and, and, and maybe you're like one of the people who was with us, and who's just kind of shaking like this and just terrified. Surely she was thinking, this isn't as great as everybody said. But over in the corner uh, around, we see the fabled Barney Stone, this, the Blarney Stone, this thing that people have talked about, how great and how wonderful, how amazing it is. And, but this is how you have to get to it. You walk right around the edge, and, and then you wait in a line, and then you get down on your knees, you sit down on your bottom, you roll over onto your back, and you arch as far back as you can, and you grab these bars, and so half your body is hanging off the edge of the castle. You've got some well-intended Irish person holding onto your legs, and you prepare to pucker up and to kiss a rock that's been kissed by all kinds of people. I'm going to say, praise God for the coronavirus. I'm never kissing that thing. <laughs> right? And so it failed to live up to expectation. It failed to deliver. It was not that great. And it was expensive. But when we come into this, we have to walk away from, the, from this passage with a right understanding, asking this question, is Jesus truly great? Read with me as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, and speaking of Jesus, speaking of this beloved Son, He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They all cohere. And he is the head of the body, the church He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me pray for us once more. Father, Father God, we come to you, and and some of us in our hearts, we are asking this question, is he truly great? Is he worthy of my praise? Is he worthy of my trust? Is he worthy of my belief? So God, I pray that your spirit will be at work in our hearts and our minds, confirming the truth of his greatness, confirming the truth of his resurrection, confirming the truth of the possibility of our forgiveness of sins. God, help us to answer well this question. Is Jesus truly great. We submit this to you in his name. Amen. Amen. Friends, as Paul opens this passage, he is in some sense introducing the church there in Colossae to who Jesus is and and why Jesus is so great, seeking to interrupt their question with an affirmative answer. And so he writes, and speaking of Jesus, he says he is the image of the invisible God. And so we we get this understanding that, that those there living 30 years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, they wouldn't have met him in the flesh. But here Paul writes and says, listen, this is who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. In essence, Jesus makes seen that which was previously unseen. We know that God doesn't have a body like man, but Jesus makes God visible. Now, one of the things we read in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, so no one's ever seen the Father. But what? But Jesus has made him known. Jesus reveals God the Father. When people met Jesus, they experienced God. They learned of God's character. They saw God's love. They experienced God in flesh. So Jesus, in his humanity, in the incarnation, revealed what had previously been unseen. John 14 and verse 9, Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for his departure. And Philip is going to him and, and, and asks a question. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
to see Jesus, to know Jesus, is to have known the Father. And so Jesus is written of by Paul here as being the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes God visible. Jesus displays the goodness of God. And in Jesus, we are able to know God. Through Jesus, we're able to know God. And look what it says of him. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about his greatness. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. Psalm 89 and verse 27. The psalmist writes and says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, when we think of him in terms of of firstborn children. I'm not the firstborn, and so this was was never my privilege, but we have this understanding coming from Judaism and from this Greco-Roman background that within the Greco-Roman conception of things, the firstborn was the heir. He's the one who received all these things, but the firstborn had priority. He had this special relationship. He had a a sense of, of greater importance than those who would follow after him. So Paul's not writing it into here and saying, look, the first thing God created was Jesus. And, and, and we know that by virtue of what he says next. But he says Jesus is the most important. And of all those things ever created, Jesus himself not being created still reigns supreme. How do we know this? Well, look at his role in creation, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, he says, for by him all things were created. In essence, nothing exists. Nothing you can look around and see, nothing you can reach out and touch, nothing exists that is created that was not created by Jesus. Man. And so we recognize that the totality of this, Genesis 1-1, is really kind of echoed here in verse 16. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And look what he says. For by him, by Jesus, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things. Everything. So everything you can see and those things you can't see. Everything you can see and those things you can't see. And so we recognize in some sense, we see the mountains, we see the sky, we see the water. We feel cold, we feel heat. We see the constancy of the universe. All these things, this passage tells us, were created by Jesus. So we see his power. We have some sense and understanding of his majesty. In the totality of his creation, all things, he says, heaven, earth, Those things you can see, those things you can't see. And look what he does next. He transitions and he begins to describe those things we cannot see. Now listen, in our Western conception of things, we're we're much more comfortable with those things we can see, right? We're much more comfortable with those things we can see, those things we can understand. I I, 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 I trip on a kid's toy, I trip on a Lego, I kick the wall, I break my toe. I, I have felt all of those things. They're all intensely painful, But but I'm comfortable with that because I recognize what it is. It's something visible. It's something experiential. But when we move into the realm of the unseen, our Western minds begin to wrangle with this, begin to ask ourselves this question. And and what Paul communicates to us here and what the totality of the, the Bible communicates to us is that there's both a physical and a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual realm in existence that is invisible to our eye but is nonetheless real. And being, being invisible, we have this propensity, we have this tendency amongst our culture to doubt its very existence. To doubt its very existence. But look at what Paul says about it in Ephesians 6.12. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have this understanding in the midst of this that Jesus Christ is even over this invisible reality. Now dwelling there in Colossae, they had this, 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 this understanding, this stratification of, of rulership. So much like you would in any business, you, you've got the owner, you've got kind of the, the operator, you've got a manager, you've got assistant managers or assistant to the managers, you've got all these kind of underlings that are moving around. In the midst of all these things, <clears throat> we would say, I understand how this various system works out. Well, look at what Paul says of Jesus. He says, all these things were created. He's the firstborn. He is over all of these things. And so he takes all of their various conception of, of, of worshiping the stratification of invisible beings. And he's not endorsing them necessarily, but what he is saying was, if something exists, Jesus created it. 
And so whether these thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all these things were created through him, and all these things were created, listen to this, this is important, for him. All these things are created for him. So although we recognize that Satan rebelled against God, that fully a third of the angels fled with him, and they live in active rebellion today, and they seek to distract, they seek to turn your gaze away, they seek to lead you in, in doubting, they seek to lead you in not believing, they seek to keep your life busy and keep you from focusing on him, and they seek to afflict you with disbelief. All these things were originally created for Jesus. And have this understanding. I want you to know this. I want you to hear me say this. You were created on purpose to worship God. God created you. He formed you, and he fashioned you. Your life here today is not a mistake. It may feel like that to you. It may feel like you are a terrific disappointment to everyone around you and to God. Where you are today, the God of the heavens who has created you, has given you a capacity to know him, and has called you to worship him. All of these things, those things visible, those things invisible, all created for Jesus. Every man, woman, and child, all of creation finds its ultimate purpose in expression in worshiping and glorifying Jesus. This, this, this calls those of us who have submitted our lives to Jesus to reorder and reprioritize our lives. And what a wonderful time God has given us to the consideration of reprioritization, right? He's taken away from us kids' sports. He's taken away from many of us of our hobbies. He's given, given to us an opportunity in this time to allow him to use this space for the refining of our hearts and our activities. Let us not forsake what God has intended in this time in the busyness of life and filling it up of Netflix and filling it up of busyness and filling it up of just laying in bed. Let us press hard into the situation and see fully realized what it might look like if you and I were to live up to our full potential of being made for him, of glorifying him in all we do. Amen? Look what he says next. Thinking of all these things and the vastness of the universe, he says, listen, you've got all these various created things, and I'm sure you're tempted to think some of these things are amazing, but Jesus is, is before all these things. Now, he's not just talking in, in terms of logical priority, as in he existed before all these things, but we recognize Christ is pre-existent. He existed with God the Father and the Holy Spirit before all things. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus was. Before God said, uh, and he established the heavens and the earth, Jesus was. Before all of these things, God the Father and the Holy Spirit were together in perfect harmony, living in Trinitarian delight. But all of these things he is before, and all of these things he is better than, and in him all things cohere. Recognize this. Your cellular body, your physical body is being held together by the power of Jesus today. The universe, gravity, the heat of the sun, the cold of the wind, the pull of the ocean, all of these things, the moon in its place, all of these things are being actively held together by the power of Jesus. We ask the question, is he truly great? How could he not be? How could he not be? The God who spoke the universe into existence didn't just leave it cosmically, turn up the watch and say, I'll see you later. I'll check in on you sometime in the future. God is actively today holding all these things together. And this gives us the impression that our lives desperately need his radical physical engagement today. We cannot hold ourselves together. We cannot hold our lives together. We cannot hold our families together. But we know one who can. The one who holds the universe in its place, the sun in its, in its sphere, he holds us together as well. We desperately need the active involvement and engagement of Jesus who holds all things together. Amen? We think about how these things work and and in the midst of this of his cosmic display of majesty, we see him in what we would refer to as the mundane ordinariness of the church. The Jesus who spoke all, who, who created all these things through him and for him to bring him majesty, who's holding all things together, is radically engaged in the church. 
man, I love the local church, and I hope you do as well. I hope you are active and involved in a local church and that it is ministering to you. And as its hands and its feet, you are radically engaged in ministering to those around you. We need to be involved and engaged and belonging to and accountable to a local church. But that's not the local church primarily that he's talking about. He says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is over all of these things. And so we recognize whenever we hear of the church and, and it's doing things that we disagree with and it's abusing people and it's abusing power and it's, it's building up wealth and it's appropriating majesty for itself, we would say, no, 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 no. This is not how the church operates because the church always moves in submission to the head. Imagine if my head went this way and my body moved that way. What would be terrible? I wouldn't go very far, would I? I would land flat on my back. We should recognize the same thing in the church. When the church seeks to move in opposition to the head, when the church seeks to move in independence of the head, it is violating the headship, the authority of Jesus. Is he truly great? Is he truly great? We recognize our submission to his greatness, our submission to his sufficiency, our submission to his headship, in so much as the universal church's decisions and actions are realized at the local level. Unfortunately, we see terrific dysfunction in its propensity to pop up over and over and over again in the local church. This isn't an indication of Christ's failure, of God's failure. This is an indication that men and women desperately need redemption over and over again. That we desperately need to re-experience an understanding of what the church is and its purpose and its function in who Christ is. God didn't set pastors as the head of the church. God didn't set deacons as the head of the church. God did not even suggest, submit families at the, as the head of the church. God placed Christ at the head of his church. Romans 12 verse 4 and 5 says, For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There is this radical interconnectedness that our God has given us by establishing Jesus as the head of the church universal. This is why we frequently pray for the other churches of our community, for the churches of the world, for the missionaries engaging in a foreign context, because we recognize that God has made us to be one for one purpose, his rule, reign, and proclamation. And we have the ability to engage in this because he has redeemed us. God has entrusted this amazing message of life-transforming salvation to a group of wayward people who frequently give themselves to argument, this is the grace and mercy of our God. You would look at this and say, this is ludicrous. You shouldn't entrust it to them. And I'm frequently prone to believe this. And why has he done this? So we would trust in his grace. So we would rest in his mercy. So God could do unimaginable things through broken means, you and me. Amen? This is what he needs us to be. And this is what we have now an opportunity to be. A bastion of hope. A place of solace. Ministering to the needs of our community and beyond. Praying for our leaders and beyond. Praying for the hurt. Empathizing with them. Meeting their needs. We have an opportunity to show the love of God in a profound way. Because everyone right now, regardless of race, regardless of station, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of belief, everyone right now is experiencing the same situation. Let us show them the hope of the gospel. It is entrusted to the church for its extension to humanity. Is he truly great? Certainly he is. He goes on and he says, uh, he is the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We remember the words of John's gospel when he opens up and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so Paul is here kind of echoing the same thought that he is the beginning. He is the beginning that all things find their beginning place in him. And God is desperately calling for us to come back and find ourselves in him. And so the question becomes, how can we be found in Jesus? 
How can when we have intimacy with God, we can be found in Jesus, we can have intimacy with God because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Paul, in a conversation with King Agrippa, as he's sitting in chains in Acts 26 and verse 23, speaks of Christ and he says, Christ is the first to rise. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, in this long extended chapter on the resurrection, says that Jesus is the first fruits, that Jesus led the way, that he's the first to be raised from the dead. Why? So that Jesus, what he did in perfection, you and I might join in in following him. And having received his forgiveness and having received his grace and his mercy, you and I might, might too one day be resurrected. This is the hope that we have. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, calls us to follow him. And all of these things he's done, that he might be preeminent. So that someone could say to you, is he truly great? And you could say, I know none greater. Is he truly worthy? And you could say, all others find their worth in him. So that someone could say to you, should I follow him? And you might say to them, follow me as I follow him. And let us find ourselves following Jesus, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus, who alone is truly great. Paul goes on, he says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When Solomon when, when David's son Solomon is building his temple, and it is fantastic. You'll remember David uh, raised up supplies for years and years and years. He entrusted it to Solomon to finish, and it was just majestic. It was so incredibly amazing. In his Second Chronicles chapter 6, in verse 18, Solomon asked this question, even looking at the majesty of his temple. He says, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? He says, this thing's so great, so amazing, so beautiful. Will God dwell with man on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. All the majesty of Solomon's temple couldn't contain a fraction of the goodness of our God, a fraction of his presence. But in John chapter 2, Jesus looks at the temple there in Jerusalem, and he says, if you tear this temple down in three days, it'll be resurrected. If you tear this temple down in three days, it'll be built. And they go to Jesus and they say, you are nuts. You are just smooth, crazy. It took us years and years to build this thing. How could you say if it was torn down, it would be built up again in three days? Jesus wasn't talking about a temple made with earthly hands. Jesus was talking about his body. And this tells us that the fullness of God is revealed, was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Is he truly great? In the incarnation, Jesus revealed God. But in his full divinity, he is God. And he displays God's greatness. He holds in God's majesty. What does he do with these things? Look at verse 20 as we consider what he did with his greatness. It says, Jesus... Reconcile, reconcile through him to reconcile himself all things. So God is moving through Jesus, reconciling all things back to himself. Now, in terms of reconciliation, reconciliation in some sense takes two parties to agree, or this is kind of our normal understanding of things. But what we see in this passage is that God, who is the offended party, it is God that we have sinned against. It is God's laws that we have violated. It is God's characters that we said, I don't want any part of. It is God himself we have rejected. It's God whom we've sinned against. And God is the one who extends reconciliation. God moves us or extends to us the possibility of moving from hatred to friendship. From hatred to friendship. God seeks to accomplish this through his son, Jesus. And how vast is his reconciliation? How wide is his reconciliation? He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We recognize that we need the sacrifice of Jesus in order for us to be redeemed, restored, reconciled to God. This is what our God has done. He sent his son Jesus in the fullness of time, allowed him to die on our behalf so that peace might be made, so that peace might be established. Is he truly great? Is he truly great? And I can tell you today, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then he is great enough for your sickness, that he is great enough for your fears, that he is great enough for your finances, that he is great enough for your disappointments. He is great enough for your doubts. He is the greatest. There is none greater. And on the basis of his greatness, beloved, let us rest in the immensity of his greatness. Let us rest in the immensity of his greatness. You have no struggle. He cannot carry you through. Rest in his greatness. Let us trust in the finished work of Jesus. For a long time, I thought God was displeased with me. I thought God's relationship with me is much like our relationship with anybody. That it depended on how well I had done lately, how good I had been lately. But what we read in this and what we see over the course of the Gospels is that we are able to trust, not in our most recent display of faithfulness, but we are able to trust in the finished work of redemption, of forgiveness, the grace and deliverance wrought us by the blood of Christ's cross. And finally, let us tell of his greatness. And if he has redeemed you, then we need to be busy telling others the hope that they can find in Jesus, the forgiveness of sins available to them in Jesus. Let us trust in him. Let us rest in him. And let us tell of his greatness. But maybe as you listen to this, maybe as you hear this today, you're wondering and you're asking yourself the question, how do I put my trust in Jesus? How can I come to know him? The Holy Spirit is working in you and you desire to pursue this further. Man, you can send us a message. You can send an email to elders at ridgecrest.com. In a moment, there's going to be a link dropped in, and you can go into a Zoom meeting with one of our staff who would love to talk to you about this. But how you can know him is simple and profound. We recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God does not expect perfection from us. He moves and sends, sent his son Jesus exactly because of our inability to please him and our inability to be perfect. For the wages of sin is death. Because we have sinned, because we have rebelled against God, the just penalty due us is to be forever removed from the presence of God and to forever face the consequences of our sins. Romans 5.8 tells us, that God didn't wait for us to be good, that God didn't wait for us to be moving towards goodness, that God didn't even wait for us to be tired of being bad. But Romans 5.8 tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is he great? His greatness overcame sin and death. His greatness calls you to himself. And his greatness would have you confess him as Savior and Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you consider his greatness?
Would you submit yourself to follow him? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your son Jesus, for the majesty of his cross, for the forgiveness we enjoy in his name. Is he truly great? There is none greater. Are we able to know him? He is worthy to be known. He is worthy of all praise and majesty. And you are calling us to him. So God, I pray that we would place our full faith and confidence in your son Jesus. In his cross. And in his redemption. And we submit these things to you in his name. Amen.